Welcome to Wednesdays with SSP, a podcast produced by MIT Security Studies Program. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in security studies are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Rosella Capella Zielinski, a professor of political science at Boston University. Professor Zielinski's Wednesday seminar lecture asked the question Under what conditions do coalition partners field their forces together in battle? In looking to answer this question, Zielinski presents her research on the Burma campaign during World War II. Zielinski is an associate professor of political science at Boston University and the author of How States Pay for Wars, published by Cornell University Press in 2016. This book won the 2017 APSA Best Book Award in International History and Politics. Um, it's an honor to be here. I'm really excited. You had my co-author Ryan Grauer last year presenting on some of our work on battlefield coalitions and coalition command structures. And um, <clears throat> it kind of really gets at, so we've been doing battlefield coalitions for a while, and a good friend of mine and colleague Kaya Shilda has a saying, no one likes a happy family. I mean, we love happy families. But they make less interesting stories. And I think that kind of gets at the essence of why we spent so much of our time on battlefield coalitions. And it's really interesting how groups with different um, aims, stakes, preferences, capabilities, cultures, languages come together and fight more or less than the sum of their parts. And so that's just really the essence of what we're going to for, for understanding. Uh, and today, we are going to be talking about our book project, um, which asks the question, under what conditions do battlefield coalitions form? And we're going to get a snippet of it, which is the Burma campaign um, during World War II. The book is we're hoping, we've done the archival research for, but not started the cases, um, also looks at the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, as well as the Gulf War. And you're really getting in on the ground floor because this is our first full presentation of this project. And I know how special this audience is, um, especially if there's some active duty folks as well here. I'd love your feedback. And I even have some little asterisks of places where we haven't quite figured out what we feel theoretically. So please, um, we really do welcome any and all feedback, questions, comments. Oh, and a, a brief note on this picture. Um, this is the 81st West African Division, which fought part of the 14th Army. Not a coalition in this picture, but we wanted to stress that this is not a white man's war um, in the Burma campaign. Okay. So it's a battlefield coalition, amalgamations of officers, troops, and material brought together by multiple distinct actors for the purposefully of waging combat in the same operational battle space. And I just want to highlight the distinction between a wartime peace, uh, wartime, uh, sorry, uh, Formal peacetime alliance and a wartime coalition. Um, a wartime coalition ad hoc grouping that comes together uh, to confront some threat enemy during war. 
we were really interested in that next step of cooperation um, that really gets at almost like collective action under hostile circumstances. And so this really this next purposeful step. And um, they're relatively common. I'll give very few descriptive stats. Uh, if you're interested, they all come from our data set, um, belligerence in battle, publicly available, 492 got to remember it, major land battles waged during 62 interstate wars from 1900 and 2003. So battlefield coalitions, fairly common. Um, from 1900 to 2003, about a quarter of all battles have a battlefield coalition on one side. But they take off at the end of co uh, the Cold War. 52% of all battlefield coalitions from the, uh, of all major land battles from the end of the Cold War are battlefield coalitions. And I just want to kind of get at and to stress how different this is from a wartime coalition uh, and the uniqueness of, of these groupings. And if we can do this question right, how powerful it could be. Um, because we're not just getting at the presence and understanding we can get the presence of a battlefield coalition. But if we do this right, the composition, what members are going to be a part of it, and thus its size. And let me give you an example here. So bear with me while I read. So during the Korean War, 10 of the 15 major land battles featured a battlefield coalition. The US and South Korea fight side by side for five major battles. Uh, US, South Korea were joined by Turkey in the Battle of Shangshan River and the Netherlands in the Battle of Hohensong. The United States and France fight together in Shipyong-Need and Heartbreak Ridge. The largest UN coalition battle was waged in the first phase of the Chinese Communist Spring Offensive, which had nine members joining. North Korea um, and China, for their part, fight side by side on the battlefield three times. So this is really some rich variation that we're trying to explain. Advantages and disadvantages, like why would you do this and not do this? I think they're both obvious in a lot of ways, and the fact that they're both obvious makes this perplexing to me. Advantages, more troops and material than any one state could do on their own. Um, and if done well, keyword if done well, you can exploit comparative advantages. Um, also, they, we found they tend to do better. So let me pull this out. So between 1900 and 2003, battlefield coalitions won approximately 54% of their battles compared to fighting alone of 45%. They're also more efficient. They have a 21% casualty rate versus fighting alone a 25% casualty rate. But disadvantages also are obvious and abound. So yes, you might have some shared war aims. You're already part of a coalition. Um, but you're going to have different political, strategic, operational, and tactical preferences. Um, you may not want to tie your fate to another group. right? You may not want to trust them on the battlefield. right? Shirking, free riding are large concerns when forming battlefield coalition. And you may not want to subordinate if you have a hierarchical command structure, you may not want to subordinate your troops to another group. And combining resources is hard. It takes resources, and it takes time, right? We have different states having different rules of engagement. Uh, again, creating some kind of command structure. Maybe it's some collective body. It could be hierarchical. It takes time. We need to combine all this variation in quantity, uh, quality and skills, and, of course, interoperability. So that leads us to the question. Go ahead. You know, why form battlefield coalitions? So I'm not going to belabor the existing literature too much because there's not much out there on battlefield coalitions. 
um, in the first place. But a couple things. So we could say, like, all right, you have a pre-existing treaty arrangement. You're more likely to fight together. Right? That makes sense. Um, but it really kind of doesn't bear out. So 40% of all battlefield coalitions included two or more members that had a pre-existing agreement to fight together. So it's not the overwhelming scene. All right, well, maybe there's a powerful actor to absorb these, transition, these transaction costs, to monitor, to ensure everything is going well. Okay, possible. But we actually found that these large superpower actors that could do this, not really present in a lot of the battlefield coalitions in our data set. For the US, um, I was going to say, so they contribute to, US is a part of a battlefield coalition, about 34% of all battlefield coalitions, 1900 to 2003. Not a major power that whole time. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, they're part of 39% of all battlefield coalitions. So this isn't like a US story at all. Um, also, we could think democracies are regime type. We have lots of literature of democracies and political science. All these reasons, they come together uh, easier and thus do better. But that's actually not what we found at all. There are very few de fully democratic battlefield coalitions, actually less than 20%. So what's going on? So we have, and I really do welcome any and all feedback on this, but I think in some ways is a deceptively simple theory. We think there are just two basic criteria, motive and opportunity. Both must be there. And first, when we think of motive, we think of perception of stakes of the looming combat action. So we want to really say that this is different than war aims, again. right? So again, you're, you're a member of a wartime coalition. You've already agreed and come together to be on this side. So you share broad general goals. But it's this like next step. So stakes are the degree to which the use of military force, I'm oh, sorry, stakes are the degree to which battle, uh, belligerents believe the successful execution of a specific looming combat action is essential to the achievement of larger objectives in the war. So again, it's just a more immediate of how we think of the value of that looming combat action. Uh, we don't theorize very, why this variation of perception of stakes. I'll give a couple, because we, we obviously we've thought about it, um, but we're, we're kind of agnostic to why uh, there would be a differences in perceptions of stakes. But some, right, maybe it's a victory versus spoil story, right? Maybe one belligerent is more interested in some larger construct and achieving a larger construct of victory. Maybe one belligerent is more interested in immediate spoils. Maybe it's a multi-front war, right? And in a multi-front war, and this is going to come up in the Burma case, right? one belligerent is interested in one theater more than another. So the looming combat action isn't as interesting to them or isn't as important in that particular moment to them. Um, maybe it's a theory of war. You have a different uh, stakes, perception of stakes, right? One belligerent's more interested in attrition and believes in attrition versus thinking about it for maneuver. Or maybe it's outfitting with a larger strategic plan, which is also going to come up with Burma, right? Maybe this looming combat action is essential for success for one of the potential belligerents, but not other. But the most important part is that they're aligned. That's what we care about. Those motives, right, these shared perception of stakes are aligned versus not aligned. And they've got to be aligned and high. Because if you're aligned and low and you're like, well, we both agree that this isn't a priority, you're going to be opting out. So it's aligned and high. Um, we also care about opportunity. 
right? You might all want to fight together. You might all place importance on this looming combat action. But if you don't have the logistical capacity to carry that out, it's not going to happen. Um, side note, ever since Swamos, it was a Swami a very long time ago. We were just talking about it, at least 15 years. I really wanted to theorize logistical capability. And I have deep regrets on that desire because it's really complicated. Um, so please, this is where I'm going to welcome any and all comments when we get to Q&A to, to improve this. Um, but we think at minimum there has to be these three components of logistical feasibility. There could be four. Uh, but a minimum possessing the necessary resources, the necessary troops and equipment to come together. And I have an asterisk on interoperability because I don't know what to do with it yet. It, should it be its own thing or a subset? And do we want it to be, interoperability might be more important today than in different periods that we're interested in. So please let me know what you think about that. But at minimum, you need to have the logistical feasibility, the necessary troops and equipment. And to me, this is my favorite, you have to be capable of transporting to and maintaining a combat environment. And so here, what I'm most interested in is thinking about lines of communication, right? The route that connects your operating military unit to supply base. You need to have secure lines of communication, lift capabilities to get your troops in theater, and then the ability to maintain. And, that's, and this is abroad, right? Roads, uh, crews, engineers, all these things to maintain yourself in this operating environment. Um, and you also need to be capable to direct and redirect resources when and where needed during combat. You need to know where things are. And you need to have some kind of agreed upon command arrangement to be able to successfully facilitate the moving um, and the distribution and redistribution of resources. And so all of these things must be present for this to be logistical feasible, uh, logistically feasible. All of these things must be present. Okay. So as we can see in a nice EB2, easy two by two, like I said, deceptively simple, but you crack open the hood, it gets more complicated. Um, right, so when perceived stakes are aligned and logistical feasibility is high, we're likely to see battlefield coalitions form, right? And let's go the opposite. The, uh, always these are the easiest ones. Uh, stakes are dissonant. Uh, logistical feasibility is not there. Not likely to see it. And then we get our fun, uh, complicated boxes. And this is where we think it's going to be a, a materialistic-based story, where logistics, we think, is going to become more important than stakes and make this decision. And I think, if I got the Burma story right, at least the first cut, it's going to play out. Right? So you're aligning high, but logistical feasibility low, unlikely. And even when you have some disalignment still in your aim, if it's logistically feasible, we think that's possible. Again, we think this materialist story is going to win out. Okay. All right, Burma campaign. I'll try to do it quickly. As a qualitative scholar, it's hard because I want to give you everything. And the Burma campaign might be my baby right now. I have a baby, but this is also my baby. Like, I really have enjoyed the Burma campaign and learning about it. Okay, so why the Burma campaign? The first thing is, is it's an incredibly complex environment, like physically, geographically, complex environment. So as a first cut of trying to understand this material logistics story, we wanted a case that really made logistics important. And so that's why we're looking at the Burma campaign. Okay, so just a little bit about Burma. 
It's nestled between, obviously, we can see on the map, India and China. Geographically, it's slightly smaller than the state of Texas. It has uh, the highest mountains, the Himalayas to the north. You have three near impassable rivers, the Iridati, the Salween, and the Satang in the south. Um, far western borders, Bay of Bengal, Andaman Sea. Where it gets really fun is its monsoons. It has these incredibly uh, harsh rains, this monsoon season. And what the monsoon season does, right, we have dense jungle as a result and malaria. It's one of the most malarial areas in the world during this time. And it makes it fun for me as a scholar that likes process tracing because I have the whole period where they can't fight where they're planning operations. And so I get to trace out how they think about planning during this long period. Okay, so already complicated. Uh, and there's also no infrastructure within Burma to sustain uh, the allies. So that's even more complicated. Everything has to be built and brought in. Adding to make it even more complicated, the Japanese, so we're looking at Burma 43-44, Japanese invade Burma 41, it falls in 42, have, and you can see the area of under Japanese control, have interior lines of communication and a land resupply route through Thailand. So this is just like incredibly complicated theater. Okay. So we're gonna look at three cases. I was very pleasantly surprised when doing the research when we had two operations that were planned and abandoned. We always don't get negative cases. Um, so that really was a fun thing to think about. Well, why did they abandon these campaigns? So we're gonna look at Anakim, then Tarzan, and then the battle of, these are the abandoned ones, and the battle of Michina. Okay. Okay, so Anakim. Anakim was to be a multi-pronged operation to recapture all of Burma. And I say that now, like it kind of gives me a chuckle because I just told you how complicated that's going to be. And so, but it was, they actually planned for the recapture of all of Burma. Um, it was going to be a multi-pronged uh, operation with land and air ops uh, beginning in November 1943 with forces coming in from the north, uh, via Lido and Impahal, this would be an advances of Chinese forces from uh, the east. They were always, in all of my story, you're going to have Chinese forces that are going to be um, in India being trained by the Americans, and you're going to have the Chinese forces coming in from the east. That's going to be the, your Yunnan force. Okay. It's also going to be an amphibious assault uh, by the British up through Rangoon. So let's talk about stakes. So again, this gets abandoned. Why does it get abandoned? Sometimes I'm like, why did you plan for it? But that's not the point. Why does it get abandoned? Uh, stakes, so stakes for the Chinese are going to be high. And they're going to remain high. I'm not going to talk much about them anymore uh, because it's consistently high the whole time. Burma is the only way to get supplies into China during this period. China's basically been blockaded by the Japanese, um, and they're fighting a two-front war, basically, with the Japanese and the communists. So Chiang Kai-shek is desperate, like, yes, Lido, uh, Burma Road needs to be reopened, right? And you can see Burma Road starting here and connecting into China. So for them, this is like, this is a, always going to be a high-stakes game of survival. Okay, so for the United States, it's also very high. And China is central um, in 1943, to their, Japan, uh, to their strategy to defeat Japan. 
and its geographical positioning of China. Uh, and the story is only going to get stronger for them when we think about uh, Tarzan. They want to hit Japanese infrastructure with bases out of, out of China, from bases out of China. And to do that, you need to supply your forces in China through Burma Road. So you can't have China without opening up Burma. Burma. Um, give you a couple quotes on this just to kind of demonstrate the stakes. At a GCS meeting on 16 January 1943, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral King was clear, quote, the key to our successful attack of the Japanese homeland is the geographical position and the manpower of China. If we attempt to beat our way up through uh, Netherlands, East Indies, we will make extremely slow progress. And again, key to that, lines of communication through Burma. Another memorandum, quote, on the line of communication with China via Burma, in order to make use of Chinese geographical position as to attack enemy lines of communication in Formosa Straits and along the coast of China, perhaps John, uh, bomb Japan, Anakim here is, quote, of such importance in respect to its objective as to merit the priority which may be found indispensable to mount it. Oh, I forgot to mention most of the data today is coming from the um, combined chiefs. They had all, like, nine conferences of um, British military leaders, civilians and leaders that decide everything about the war, at times joined by uh, Soviet and Chinese representatives, as well as uh, field commanders. Sorry, I forgot to mention that like five slides ago. So that's where all of this evidence is coming from in this moment. Okay. The stakes are so high, and I was, I've read thousands of pages of these documents. I get the tone. And so this tone's not going to sound as strong as it was in context. So, but Marshall gets upset. And he, said, he even threatens to say, yep, we're going to pull out our commitments in Europe if we don't get on board with Burma. Um, so, and he says, quote, unless Operation Anakin could be undertaken, he felt that the situation might arise in the Pacific at any time that would necessitate the United States regretfully withdrawing from the commitments in the European theater. And again, that sounds very, like, polite, but that was a, the sentiment and emotion were very strong if you read all these, like, pages of stuff. The Brits are not on the same page. This is very low stakes for them. And it's Germany first. Full stop. It's a Germany first. Nothing else is going to be as important as Germany. And why, you know, use our precious resources that can be used in operations, especially lift capacity in the Mediterranean, and we'd rather use those there. Um, and they don't want to commit to Anakim at all. They want to plan for it. They're going along with this, but they're not, they're, they don't want to commit. And in all their memo language, wanted to be amended to say, if it gets freed up from operations in the Mediterranean. I won't read quotes, but I will get this juicy one from Churchill. And he says, wouldn't it be better to aid China by air, we can talk about the hump in a minute, and bypass Burma altogether, abandoning Anakin? He could not, he stated, he could not see how operations in the swamps of Burma would help the Chinese. And again, it's a difference in how are we going to do the Pacific. He prefers and he advocates for an operation hitting the tip of Sumatra. So he's like, I don't even know why we're doing Burma at all. So very dissonant stakes. Logistics. All right, I gave you so much on logistics of how much this was going to take. They're just not there. Um, and they're for a bunch of reasons. And there's so many quotes I could read. And I'm going to try not to, and I'm going to hold back, but I'll just give you the gist. Lines of communication from, um, coming from Assam down are not, do not have the tonnage. Right? It's single-track rail. The roads are not built. 
um, and they're not going to be built for a while. So it's just not there. There are no airfields ready, and there's, again, no lift capability that's available. And so I'm going to, for time, I'm going to skip all my fun quotes on logistics, but we can get to more if anyone wants them later. Okay, go ahead. I'll, go, I'll jump. Oh, and so uh, planning for Anakim's abandon in April. So the Allies go, like, okay, let's try something else. Let's go for Operation Tarzan. They start planning for the recapture of just the north of Burma, not the south. By the way, Marshall this whole time is advocating for the south still. So he wants the full Monty. So Operation Tarzan is to recapture the north of Burma for, to uh, the, connect the Lido, what will be the Lido Road, bypass all of the south, build the Lido Road and the Lido Pipeline, and connect back up into uh, the Burma Road. So this was going to be a, li a limited operation, relatively limited objectives. Um, <clears throat> and the same thing, right? Chinese Indian troops coming from the north and the Yunnan force coming in from the east, meeting up, moving towards Mandalay. All right, stakes are going to be the same for the Chinese. As mentioned, those really don't change. For the US, it only increases. Will you do one more slide, and then I'm going to have you go back. So for the United States, stakes only increase. Because bombing is becoming increasingly central to the US strategy to defeat Japan. Um, here's a great uh, one of the chiefs of staff memos. The strategic plan for the defeat of Japan envisions the actual invasion of Japan following an overwhelming air offensive from bases in China. This requires the opening of lines of communication to China, which in turn involves the early recapture of Burma and seizure of a port in China. In another memorandum describing the air plan to defeat Japan, 75% of all selected targets in Japan lie between Tokyo and Nagasaki. All of the subjective areas within 1,500 miles of uh, a region in unoccupied China. And critical here is the B-29 heavy bomber, which possesses a convenient tactical radius, again, of 1,500 miles. So for the United States, this is just increasingly becoming part of their plan to defeat Japan. And that pipeline, again, is critical. Brits are still like, yeah, no thank you. <laughs> we are still Germany first. And we want to make sure that that is the priority. And they're, they're, they're happy to continue thinking about this and planning for it. Uh, but they really still are like, let's have an air campaign. And let me just mention that really quickly. There is the hump. It's called the hump. It was basically um, air flights from India over the Himalayas to supply China because the Burma Road is gone, right? It's not available. The problem is that route, aside from being um, complicated going over the Himalayas, it's going to come up again, it's just not have enough tonnage. They just can't fly over what the amount they need in order to sustain potential air operations. And the only way to get the tonnage they need to sustain essential air operations is through a pipeline, the Lido Road pipeline, going into China and reconnecting with the Burma Road. Okay, logistics, still the problem. Still the problem. And again, I'm going to skip my fun quotes for the sake of time. Um, and it's exacerbated now because you have floods in Assam during this period that has even made your ability to enter in through Assam even worse. 
Um, landing craft that were going to be devoted for Tarzan by the Brits are now being held back for planning for Overlord. And so we're just losing that. Okay, you can go on the next. Yes, keep going. So it's abandoned again. So we finally get to a battle, the Battle of Michina, which I'm glad I learned how it was pronounced instead of seeing actually how it's spelled first. Um, so we have then a even narrower operation that's gonna take place. Very, very narrow operation. Um, the operational goal here is to drive the Japanese Eighth Army south, take the city and the airfield, because the key is gonna be the airfield. Because now you can have flights instead of all the way over the Himalayas, lower using the Michina airfield to get more tonnage into China. Um, <clears throat> and the Allies, so again, this is a battle that actually takes place, uh, launched the assault in northern Burma as a battlefield coalition. Troops comprised of two frontline American-trained Chinese divisions, one reserve Chinese division, the American 5307 uh, Provisional Infantry Regiment, you might know them as Morel's Marauders, um, and a British commanded special forces of fighters. All of this strengthened by the 4th Battalion of the Burma Regiment. They strike south, they defeat the Japanese 18th Division, while Chindin's infiltrated behind Japanese lines. They get to the Michin on the airfield on the 17th of May, 1944. Japanese lay siege. Eventually, the, with the help of the Yunnan force, they kick the Japanese out and they capture the airfield. It's successful. Again, China stakes are the same. Hi for the Brits. I have a fun little memo of FDR to Roosevelt, which I'll save, not read you the whole thing for time. Uh, but the British finally get on board. Now they're not, this is kind of that dissonant box because they're not full alignment. The British agreed to get on board because it's a narrower operation. But they still are not into Burma. And what makes it so interesting is I think is this, is make, it's a logistical story. And that's what tips the hand of the British. So Mountbatten's like, all right, I'll do this. We'll do this operation. I'm happy to do this operation. Um, but but what, what really sells it is that they're going to do it with everything that's already in theater. Everything's already in theater for this operation. Um, and so that allows this to take place. Um, and we're now, we have the Bengal-Assam Railway, so we're thinking about lines of communication into India that's finally built and that has increased capacity. So we have increased capacity of northern lines of communication. Um, now, air transport, right, we never get to build the airfields that we wanted, but it's enough to parachute in supplies to sustain these long-range penetration groups. And so that helps. Um, and once through, and we have airdrops throughout this battle to help them. So it's really not a story of, that, of the, um, the Allies' stakes finally converging as much as it is, is a logistical story, that they're able to do it. OK, last slide. So next steps, again, this is where we think we might go with this. Um, is this what, we, what I would love to hear from you is if anyone has any insights, again, on anything. Um, next up is finishing the book, is really, is really about interoperability. I took it for granted <laughs> when working on this piece uh, a lot, and I was like, why did I? I, I? I took it for granted so much because everything for the Chinese was on U.S. supply lines. Like, we trained and we equipped. 
So I took it for granted because it wasn't a point of contention that drove the conversation. Um, and, and I'm used to reading about cases where states and equipment are on US supply lines. And that really threw me off. Uh, and I was like, wait, wait, what's not on our supply lines? How does that look? So I, again, love to hear your thoughts on interoperability. Uh, but our big goal is to think about logistics being taken seriously when we think about this and burden sharing driven by both perceptual and material factors. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, Rosella. So the floor is open for questions. I'll keep a running list and sure. call on people. Um, so let's see. Um, Barry, why don't you go first since your hand was up? Or I saw it first. I see my Eric. foremost knowledge. Um, okay. Rich, RN, so NA. I'm trying to figure out this case, which I don't know well. It's probably, and I think I don't know it well for reasons that have to do with what you're observing. So I'm just going to advance the proposition boldly. Okay. The turn from non-operations to operations, which you say has to do with logistics. You're right, it has to do with logistics. Uh, I don't challenge that. But it, all of this is actually settled strategically somewhere else. Okay. The question of logistics is settled strategically somewhere else. And it's, it's settled this way for two years. Um, in the war in the United States, the usual priority of theaters is what people, historians will say, is Europe one, District two, mm -hmm. CBI, leavings. And in the Pacific, I think the historians now understand that we fought at least two wars in the Pacific, probably one more than we needed. But since one belonged to the Navy, one belonged to the Army, you couldn't adjudicate the other two, so you had to prove it. So that's point one, right? This CBI is at the low end of the chain. And then temporally, you're at the, at, almost at the moment when the industrial mobilization is kicked into super high gear. The usual model on industrial mobilization is first year you get nothing at all, second year not much but some, third year almost as much as you need, fourth year more than you can use. Right? That's, that's what they just did, the, the people who studies the war mobilization will tell you. You mark the beginning of American war mobilization as June of 1940, which I believe is the correct time to look at it. You're seeing that your offenses are fall, falling about the time that the Americans are at their mass. So you've got the convert, you've got the, the interaction of the fact that CBI is the least important and they can't mount their offensive until the moment when the American production effort is at its absolute max, right? So I'm not Gain saying your observation about logistics, but I think your observation about logistics could be strengthened if you situate it into a larger strategic story. And it might be in some of your other cases, you might want to locate it in a larger strategic story as well. Uh, as far as you know, commonality, I think your intuition, interoperability, your intuition of the Chinese and Americans is basically right. And I think at this point in the theater, there's a lot of, you know, interoperability between the Americans and, and, and the Commonwealth forces because a lot of the higher tech stuff is coming from us at that point. 
Right. So um, good on you for telling a good story about logistics. Thank you. And, uh, I Can I leave it. now? <laughs> I don't even want to respond. I'm just going to go. <laughs> I swear it gets. I would just say, yeah. what's your reaction to my states? And second, yes. um, do you think it might help you with some other aspects of your I don't know. So my first reaction was thinking about it and related to shipping. And because the Brits were like, we don't have the shipping to do this, right, with Anakin and Tarzan. And, and I didn't tell this in the story because Chiang Kai-shek wants an amphibious operation. So he's pushing, he's really pissed that they don't, they're like, no, we can't do it. He's really mad and even threatens to pull the Yunnan force without having an amphibious operation. And he wants that because he's so worried about the Japanese um, and their, their lines of communication. He's like, I, we, I think the Japanese are as strong as they are. Um, so when it comes to shipping, the Americans are saying that. Like, we have the shipping. We're going to cover this aspect because the Brits are like, we don't have that capacity. And the Americans are saying, it's coming online. Don't worry about it. And the Brits kind of counter and said, you're going to give us your shipping, but we've learned, and I can't remember what they said they learned from, but we learned we just can't put our personnel with your shipping. Like, we have to train on this. We have to go through all these motions to... Uh, interoperabil interoperability. Transport yeah. And, and so, okay, good. That's right. <laughs> and so, well, the Americans come back and say, I mean, what are you talking about? We have this. And the Brits say, it doesn't sway them to convince in, in the operation. So in the more micro, I guess, sense, I don't know how I feel because the Americans tried saying we can do these other aspects in terms of capacity because it's coming online and the Brits aren't having it. And one thing that you could, then I would counteract if I were you, but you know, not being full berry here, I would say, well, one variable we're not accounting for is that this is British, this is British territory, like this is their colony, this is their, this isn't like all three are coming at this at Burma neutrally. This is going to always be a British operation. And so again, unaccounted variable here, um, exposing my own weaknesses are, are, are you know, in our, in our story, um, because even if the Americans say we're giving you all this and they can do it successfully, I think the Brits would probably still balk and the Americans can't do much unless they do the full thing themselves and they don't have that capacity. So I don't know what you think about that. I don't know the campaign at all. Yeah, I'm sure Taylor can talk will dredge up his memory and still own the American experience in China and we'll raise some questions about you know, yeah. what, what can you really get from Chiang Kai-shek at that point? Yes. Was being cooperative military to check out the Chinese, right? Still, that thing was what was Robert Sessions? Yeah. And the joke was General Cash by check. I've not heard that before. And so we haven't gone through Stillwell's diaries yet on this, by the way, and we're still going through. We're still going through our archival stuff to lift up the operational conversations as well. Um. Uh, two finger. I actually have a two finger on this that's related okay. to Stillwell. Hi, my name's Nick. I'm a fourth year PhD Hi. student. Um, this was really, really cool. Um, oh, thank you. I, yeah, my, my knowledge of Burma during this period is very limited. But one thing I was curious about is there's one group of actors that you don't mention in your case study, and I don't know if they're scoped out or irrelevant, mm. but the Hill tribes that the U.S. really needs the cooperation of in order to prosecute this offensive against the Japanese and their groups like the Shan and the Karen and the Wa. Um, and one thing that I'm sort of puzzled by is that the U.S. is able to form these battlefield coalitions with these groups, even though the logistical 
compatibility variable would be extremely low. And so an example I was thinking of this mm. is there's a great story of General Stilwell who's communicating with one of these tribal leaders. And he says, well, how do you know how many Japanese that you've killed in this battle? And so the tribal leader pulls off this little bamboo thing that he has on his back, dumps a pile of human ears on the table and says, divide by two. Um, and so, you know, what obviously... An, what an anecdote. What, right, right. Very... It's, um, it's, it's in Bertolt Lindner's um, 1994 book on Burma and, uh, and, and insurgency there. But, but anyways, the point is it's if logistical battlefield coalitions are actually possible in these scenarios that are very, very unlikely within this given theater, is it possible that maybe the logistics variable maybe matters more at this sort of grander level than at mm. the micro one? And, and where is your theory scope? <clears throat> so I... <laughs> I only know, this didn't come up in the, the document, uh, so far the documents I've seen. I only know about it through watching, there's like two documentaries on the Burma campaign. Don't remember their names. One of them I think is Mountbatten, like put together. And it comes up there just, I think something like 45 nationalities, quote unquote, are in there. It's like a really polygot army. And that's why I love the picture, this is not a white man's war. Um, and so I don't know this story. And so I don't have a comment on that. I mean, I know of it a little bit. And that's something I want to learn more about. So I don't have a comment, but it's definitely something to think about. I mean, I think this also gets at... Um, the other part of the story that I didn't tell was about command arrangements. And I think you're indirectly getting at that. Yeah. Um, and w part of that, we didn't get it. One, I don't know, you know, I don't know enough yet. And we're still writing this, you know, this chapter out. And it's a... I'm still alive. Okay, it's a shitty command story. I'm sorry, I can't think of a better word. <laughs> but because you have like ABDA uh, to like other, they're, they're figuring out who's in charge this whole time, both in thinking of larger, you know, what's part of the theater command, and then specifically what's going on. And Stillwell plays a very funky role because of China and the Chinese. You know, who's in charge? Stillwell, through this story, is getting increasing uh, operational control throughout. And so finally, by 44, it's kind of solidified in the command story. Um, that doesn't get at it, and I didn't answer your question, but I hear your question, and I've noted it. To, to come back later on when I'll have something brilliant to say in like and a month And it may totally now. be irrelevant here, right? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just curious about the story yeah. conditions in general. But yeah, that's a, yeah, don't have an answer, but it's a great question. Thank you so much. Nick, was that two finger also your one finger? Or yeah. you're done? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, next, we have Kaylee. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Kaylee Stickcock-Fellow. Um, so my questions are, I sort of have two questions. Um, one is, I'm thinking about this lines of communication mm. that you keep coming back to, and wondering, does the coalition extend to the lines of communication as well? Like, are they cooperating on these, establishing these lines, or is it really, like, I'm on one side of the coalition, I'll take this line, you take that line, and we'll meet at the middle. Um, just curious there. And then this idea of the Burma case raises the like for me raises the question of like what role is geography playing so how how does geography compound or maybe alter the logistical capabilities so i guess like in a maybe like i'm thinking like in a flat battlefield like does this logistical question maybe not play a similar role as a mountainous and yeah really river great question yeah. hmm. well i don't know yet on the, on the second question, it's a great question, and that's, you know, because we started with this, like, if logistics is going to be seen and how it's going to be seen, it's going to be seen in Burma. Um, so I've, I've, that's why we started there. And so I'm intrigued to see how this comes up later. 
Um, so I don't have an answer, but I'm going to take that absolutely. And I think your first question in terms of, and it's Kaylee with a C? Yeah, yeah okay. I just wrote it down, so I'll make sure. The first question from lines of communication, I mean, I took that initially in terms of a peacetime question, because they're all working on building lines of communication. You have General Wheeler in there, and he's getting this whole time more and more engineers to uh, improve these lines of communication and build these roads into Burma and through Burma, um, which, you know, you know, when you're writing your work, you know all of your weaknesses and where folks can, not all of them, but you know, you have ideas of where folks can probe. And it's really this relationship between stakes and logistics continues throughout the Burma campaign because as stakes increase, the U.S. is investing on these lines of communication, right? That's why we have Wheeler now. That's why we have 4,000 engineers. So they're being built over time. And the Brits want that too. They're like, let's build lines of communication. Let's build this up so we can do this right. So stakes are not like... Like, that's why we do the whole Burma campaign, I think. Um, we never intended on it, but I'm like, well, we have to start. I actually start the chapter. It's going to be too long. It's already two chapters. It can't be a book about Burma. But, um, I, I, you know, I start in, like, 1940. Like, you have to see how this evolves to make it logistically feasible, and these two things interact. And when you say coordinating on lines of commission, are you thinking on the, this larger peacetime moment? when they can build it, or are you thinking they need it? I think I was more so thinking like the extent to which the coalition, like where's the coalition start and end sort of, mm. and, and thinking about how you're talking, like initially say, right. is it just a strong state coming in and saying, let's like ordering other states around or other, other states' capabilities around? So is it someone is taking charge of establishing the lines of communication saying, yeah. So that's so that goes also to a, current, a command arrangement question as well. And I don't have an answer to, but we will, and that's kind of, again, this one piece of the story that I haven't fully flushed out and written out yet. Um, so I'll note that when I, as I keep working on the story. Thank you. Um, Eric Higginbotham. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was fascinating. Uh, I enjoyed that quite a bit. So uh, I think the two of my questions have already been addressed in one way or another, but I'll ask them again anyway. Um, <laughs> first has to do, it's a general question that has to do with level of, the level at which you're looking here. The, mm the level of war at which you're looking. And Nick sort of, sort of addressed this, but in your initial introduction to the larger project, you kept using the word battle. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is obviously a, it's yeah. a campaign, it's a war, it's a series of campaigns, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's got two fronts to it. You know, you might even consider them two separate campaigns. The Americans are up in the north, mm -hmm. the British are, you know, to the west. They don't even start to intersect until pretty late in the conflict. Which gets kind of at Cayley's point. Um, right. Of when exactly. they're of when they're exactly. meeting yeah. and how that looks. And I and I and, I've, and you see that I think you're to your point most when talking about Tarzan and Anakim. I think keep, keep going, keep going. Right. So you know, in a sense, this is where I was going with this. Your summary. So I started looking at, and I I'm, I'm quite rusty. I've forgotten ninety five percent of what I at once knew about the Burma campaign, and that wasn't too much to start with. But when I started, it was Slim's yeah. memoir, right, yeah. on the British side. Then you can read Stillwell's, and they read like two separate wars. They mm -hmm. don't really intersect very much at all. Mm -hmm. um, Slim's is a little bit better on that score, but, um, but you know, certainly in early planning, you know, to the extent that the Allies were talking, um, in a sense, given that they were two very different fronts with very different lines of supply, mm. uh, the discussion, the sort of argument was over priorities and the use of 
the few assets that could be called fungible. So, you know, to a certain extent, British uh, naval, well, allied naval, mm -hmm. but to a much greater extent, all of the air assets. Mm. Um, and because of the hump, the U.S. had a pretty large percentage yeah. of our air assets, of our air lift assets, yes. located there. They could be diverted for campaigns and operations. Yeah. Um, but, you know, much like the story Barry told about our operations in the Pacific and yep. the, in the sort of this truce between the Army and the Navy or their agreement about how to divide and share resources in a sense. The Burma campaigns always struck me as that, but with the added dimension of coalitions, right? So you've got <laughs> yeah. services and um, allied partners. But, you know, I'm, I am interested in getting more of your reaction to the question of sort of the level of conflict and what we're talking about. I mean, Michina is sort of a battle, right? And it's, yeah. it's at the time when these two fronts begin to converge. But prior to that, it's a very different kind of animal. So first off, yours like a half question is like merging Barry and Kaylee's question, like almost all the questions together on one level. Um, but I, and I love how you presented it. Like all these things are going on that's already complicated, then you slap on a coalition and then like it's even more complicated. So I appreciate that because that's what we're trying to untease. I mean, I think you kind of get it in listening to you talk and I don't have a clear answer of this like neat divisional way to present this. Um, but it, I didn't put in this conversation. I, I alluded to the hump. This is a point of contestation because aside from the British saying, well, why focus on land, Burma, and that when we can focus on air assets and more air assets, it actually comes up with Chiang Kai-shek. And he's really frustrated during the planning of Tarzan and Anakin because he doesn't want to divert assets from the hump. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. Well, they're not having any cake. It was horrible. So I'm, I shouldn't be so like um, using idiomatic expressions. But he's like, I, we need hump tonnage, and I want that at 10,000. And I don't want you to divert tonnage for the Burma campaign to support the Burma campaign. And so he sends his, his delegates into these chiefs of staff meeting, and that's what they're saying. Well, this is what we want. And the allies, the UK and the US, are saying, you have to pick. <laughs> you cannot have it all. And that, and the, I haven't finished where that trail of conversation ends, because I have to go through other documents to finish that. But that's, that's where that conversation is, is forcing that choice amongst these two operations within Burma. And at Michina, they do pull them for like yes. a month or something. I mean, it really takes yeah. up all the and air. And so that is, and, and it's the Chinese that are upset about this decision making. I think, if I were to guess, I think the UK would prefer, obviously, the home, but they're agnostic of pulling the forces. But it's the Chinese who are like, I, I need both or we don't survive. And I refuse to let you to choose. And it's actually even more complicated because they want 10,000 tons and then they're debating, well, that's just like some ideal number to throw at a wall that we can uh, you know, shoot as a goal. We're not gonna reach that anytime soon anyway. And so it's the Chinese where this problem of this story comes out. Yeah. Can I do one more? <laughs> the Japanese. So the Japanese <laughs> would make a really interesting case here too because you've got mm -hmm. 40,000 Thai soldiers. You've got the, the I Indian I hope Ryan Army. is listening. Somewhere to this, because I said we should do the the, China, the Japan side for this exact point. Right, you got the the Indian, yeah. you got the Burmese forces, and then I think you're actually a, a little bit wrong on the land the land line through uh, Thailand. That was dense jungle, and they basically built their own in 
in, uh, in Burma. Mm -hmm. And they were doing things late. They brought in people to, to refine oil. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of a crazy, fascinating story. Oh. But in any case, thank you, you it, so much. Fun. Any other questions? Oh, lots of questions. Oh, um, okay. Um, um, just the method to my madness of going down the list. So next, uh, Suzanne Freeman. Hi. Um, hi, I'm Suzanne. I'm a fourth year PhD student. Um, I think the variation in the Burma case is very compelling for your theory, which is great, sort of for a first case. Um, and my question is a little bit more about the sources. Like you've given us yeah. some quotes from the sources, and so I'd be curious to hear you sort of discuss the archival sources specifically. Please, yeah. Like, I'm curious sort of where these combined chief documents are located and sort of what your approach to collecting them was. Were you just going to collect, like, all the documents related to this operation? Mm. Or was there some, like, what was sort of, like, people are always Like a historian, going, well, I'm not yeah. a historian. Yeah. On, on my best day, I, I come yeah. close to being a historian. And yeah. it's a compliment to historians. Um, um, and I guess, yeah. I guess sort of, and with that, was there any U.S. decision maker sort of in these conversations who didn't see it as quite as high stakes as sort of, especially once you get down to more yeah. of the like, command level operations, is there anybody who saw things differently? That's a great question. Um, so the command chiefs of staff minutes are accessible on the Secretary of Defense Historians, I think that's the right, website. So they're all there and they are a fantastic resources. And they're even more fantastic for someone who is tracing variation over time because it really is the same members at these meetings the whole time. And so you get such continuity. Um, so I recommend anyone interested in World War II strategic stuff, like if this is part of your case, go for it. Um, Ryan did the archival work and went over to pull from the UK archives on this. Uh, so that's Ryan, and again, we're just starting. He did that this summer, so we're just starting to unpack that. Um, and again, we're going to supplement this. Stillwell Diaries are all available online on Hoover, through or through Hoover, so that's there um, as well. And maybe I'll pick your brain on the China side. There is a fantastic uh, postdoc at Clements named Jennifer Yip, who's looking at uh, grain in, J in Japan during this period to. And I'm like, can I do? You? And she has some idea of sources here that I'm going to probe. So, the China side's my actual fear of weakness that I don't feel comfortable getting their story straight, except for what I'm getting through Western sources. I know the Chiang Kai-shek diaries are at Hoover too. Oh, okay, great. But like, you can't take any photos of them, so you have great. to like sit there. And <laughs> I went very. I had an emotional high to low in like one second in terms of source availability. And I believe they're in Chinese, right? Yeah, they are. Yeah. In Chinese. Not the skill I have. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there's an RA out there who is capable of translating. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, Rich Nielsen. Oh, hi. Hi. Rich Nielsen. Hey. Hey. Um, okay, so I really like this. I'm actually really tired today. I got very little sleep, and this kept me awake. And oh, good. I was, I was super excited. Oh, so, that's uh, great. I want to put you on theory, though. So Please, um, please. Your theory felt very static to me, mm, and, go ahead. and kind of like here, here are some factors. And then, as I was thinking through the cases that you presented, um, first it seemed like you're treating this question of does a coalition form separately from what is the shape of that coalition? Like, what are the specific features of how that coalition interacts? Mm -hmm. But I think those are intimately linked. So I think that the coalition only forms 
if all of the actors can imagine a co like the form of the coalition mm. and be convinced that they all have roughly the same thing in mind and then get on board with it. And that seemed to be what you were describing the case This reminded, this may be a really stupid analogy, but it reminded me of my 10-year-old who runs out of the neighborhood kids trying to figure out what game to play. So they all come over to our house and then they like fight about what they're going to do. And there's a couple more opinionated kids and less opinionated kids and they have different skills and different interests. And they sometimes don't manage to play. Like one kid like leaves and then the other three manage to play. So when you were presenting it, since I knew very little about the case, uh, I was like, oh, why doesn't, why don't the China and the, China and the US just form a coalition? Mm. Then it became very clear that actually there's a whole lot going on with the UK here that's essential for the, like the, China and the US don't want to play the game if the UK isn't going to play. I think because of this historical legacy with Burma or something yeah. like that. So I'd like a more strategic story, something that mm -hmm. doesn't feel like here's a checklist of conditions, once they're met, you'll get a thing, but something that actually tracks more your case, which has this iteration of, well, let's try this game. Uh, that game didn't work for me. Okay, let's try this game. That game still doesn't work for me. Let's try this game. Okay, like, I'll play with that. Like, it's not what I want. I wanted to play Nintendo, but we'll, like, <laughs> make pipe cleaners. Right. That's a really... Uh, <laughs> no, and I think... I mean, I wouldn't say a strategic story. I think it's a more... I would use the word dynamic okay. story. Um, and I should say, and I can't remember which case because my brain's already getting soft after doing this, even though it's only been an hour. Um, but the Chinese threaten to not send the Yunnan, uh, Yunnan troops a couple times. And especially when they don't get their amphibious operation initially. So they do threaten to take their toys and go home in that, in that sense. Um, <laughs> um, so I think that that's a really good way to think about how to, you know, and I have to see what's going to happen with the Boxer Rebellion and the Gulf War, but I think it's a, it's a much more dynamic story. When we started, you know, we write the theory, we wrote, we go back and forth, but the theory was presented before we knew about Anakim and Tarzan. And so we got this beautiful moment to test the, the t when do you take your toys and go home? But your bigger question is, could the British ever not be part of this? And if the answer is they always have to be part of it, then there's something else going on. Yeah. It seems like you need to have a statement about his the answer to his question, mm -hmm. which is, what, what actually is bringing all the players to the table, and how does, you're all challenging the kids in school, how, how do they get to that Venn diagram where their interests overlap enough to mm. right? And by the way, on another point, I want you to film your kids, and then send it to C-SPAN, and get your kids in split screen against the conference. <laughs> we'll see which performance but. But you know, I'm, I'm remembering this other aspect of which you highlighted um, about the even within the United States military, the minimum winning coalition for this operation mm. must have been a bit strange because it's really the Army Air Force's interest that's driving the train here. Right? It's their desire to run a strategic bombing operation out of China, yeah. yeah, which they need a line of supply for, because nothing is more labor-intensive than running B-29s anywhere, it seems to me. 
So hmm, part of the American interest in this, it's not every service doesn't have this interest. It's really the Army Air Force, right? So the Army Air Force's interest is the B-29 operation against Japan, right? The U.S. Army's interest, who knows what it is, the rest of them, you know? Um, the British interest, as you say, has something to do really with their position in India. Who knows how they're thinking about that? The Chinese interest is probably in realizing that the Americans want the strategic bombing campaign. So how can they leverage the American desire for the strategic bombing campaign to get the resources for their own army? Mm -hmm. Chang probably doesn't really want to spend time in Japanese anyway. He mm -hmm. wants to save it for something else. Stillwell knows this. So this is, I mean, people are tell, asking you, this is the long problem the tent here, this bizarre coalition. We keep finding, people in the room are focusing on macro things that seem to be the drivers of the observation that you make. So the observation that you make is that, okay, this thing only happens when the material, right? right? Everybody wants to drive you to another question, which is that yeah. your independent variable is their dependent variable for a whole bunch of other really complicated things <laughs> yes. that happen. And not only in this case, I think there are people pushing you, but your people are going to start to wonder, in all your cases, is the presence or absence of material adequacy really just a, a measure of something else? Mm. You know, an intermediate variable that's affected by something else that's much more important. Right? I think that I, I, if, if I'm following the room, I think this is where the questions have gotten. Well, I think to that last comment, which was the uh, if you have the the stakes, like you're all on board, let's just say, you can build that capacity. You can invest in that logistical capacity to get you there. If the stakes, or if the if all of the players really want to play this game, in theory, right? All of the kids could pull their money to go buy a basketball, if that's what they all want to do. Um, but I'm, I'm in. I'm right. But with, part of the problem here is that is that these various competitors are competing with others. And the British are right. competing with others worldwide. Assets. I mean, this is probably the longest sea line of communication in the world at this point to get to them. It's even longer than, than, than supporting the, the line of communication up through uh, Iran to Russia, isn't it? I mean, no, and I don't have an answer, but I know, but I, because I haven't done the sea line. But I think, I mean, is the, I guess then to, comment back to both of you or whom all of you is I can't tell if I want to think about it from how what gets you that overlapping Venn diagram or what's and maybe it's the second what's the glue that allows it to continue and I don't know which one I want to focus I don't know but I think they're both important because they're, they're both like and, and the glue is not necessarily logistics it could be like your your you know what why does everyone, you might all get there, but like, how does that solidify in itself to then translate that to put all the energy and resources to going towards something? But all amazing food for thought. And I think we have a, 
a two finger? Because maybe she, you can illuminate something that's like going on in my head that I haven't figured out yet. We now have two two fingers. Okay, great. We're balanced. So my two finger is my blind finger, so you can take me off. Okay. But I thought Rich's question was driving at something a little bit different, which is what I was also thinking about. But it seems that the composition of the coalition is being held constant. In the sense of there's not be a consideration of why is there a different type of battlefield coalition that's being formed in a specific campaign, mm. but also plausibly in the theory. But I'll get to that in a second. Mm. So the Burma campaign, especially after you gave the answer that Britain had to be part of it because it's a British colony, yeah. it seems that the coalition is required, not being explained. So you're not actually like answering the question of why is a battlefield coalition forming here, because that's a necessary condition for anything to happen down the line. Well, it, so it could have been just the Brits. So in 45, it's British, they're on out. Which I haven't, by the way, my, my, my world in this, I mean, I know a little bit about 45, but it, my world is mostly up to 44, where I like, gave you everything. But so that is just the British. And I guess I could highlight more of, again, the Chinese saying, threatening to pull out. But I do, but, but your comment still stands. Like, you know, it's multiple questions. Why the British, first off? Why the British need to be there? Why can't it just be the UK, uh, uh, sorry, uh, US, China? And what, how do we think about these other of the three, your universe of who could actually, you know, credibly be there, why, how do we think about that? So if the um, battle, if we're sort of ignoring historical conditions here, yeah. assuming that you can have a battlefield coalition of United States and China alone, yeah. would that meet your theoretical requirements because they have high alignment, they have, I'm assuming yeah. it sounds like they have the logistical ability to put it together if you go with what you said about the United States. China so, doesn't, though. They don't have the capacity. Can the United States fill in for it? No, they, they are busy elsewhere. And that goes to that troops and resources. I mean, and, and then, but like the Chinese, like they're barely ready by 44 in terms of the forces that are being trained in India. So now let me simplify that down one yeah. more. Can the United States pull it off alone? No. Okay. So, and maybe that's to, to, your, to your amazing pedagogical moving I appreciate of carrying me through to through to something, um, right? Thinking about you know who can go at it alone and under what conditions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well done. Yeah, well done. So we've got uh, another two figure here, Jackie. Yeah. Hi. Um, my alluded to this in the very beginning with the example of Korea and the Korean War and I said if I can do this well I can answer not just the presence but the composition and size and maybe I can't do it all and I need to think about picking one to your point. <laughs>
Um, down in the back, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm Moritz Greyfrath. I'm a statecraft fellow, uh, primarily stationed at Harvard down the road. Um, welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's my first time in the room, so very nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, and yeah, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Rosella, for the great presentation. I always love a good two by two and a lot of theory. <laughs> well, that's going to go away. Um, so, in, in that spirit, just to complicate the theoretical picture a little further, one thing I wanted to throw out as well is. Uh, given that we're talking about battlefield coalition, it's really striking how one side of the battlefield is kind of missing in the theory, right? So we talk a lot about mm. what's going on on the one side, fighting the other side, but how strong, for example, the other side is in the particular theater doesn't really seem to matter a lot, right? So one possible argument I was thinking about is it seems to really matter that the anticipated costs of the operation are really, really high, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and that in part goes back to Maria's point about, right, why doesn't the U.S. just do it alone? Because it seems like when the costs are really high, it seems pretty good to have some other citizens die than your own, right? So you have an incentive to form coalition. Um, maybe even it's only in combination that you're strong enough to win, so you really have no choice but to go alone, right? And so one particular way to, and conversely, when uh, the opposing side is pretty weak, you have little losses, you want to rather avoid all the transaction costs that come with coalition warfare, right? And so the question is, is this really, is it either a scope condition that this is really only about operations that are really, really high cost that you're looking yeah. at and that limits your universe of cases? Or does the balance of power on the battlefield, on the ground, in other ways affect the theoretical? I guess I suppose I would subsume that, maybe wrongly, into logistical feasibility, because that shapes what you can and cannot do. And that's why I say maybe wrongly, because it is distinct um, that, because <clears throat> there is definitely the. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I can't even believe the British agreed to plan this operation once you realize like, the recapture of all of Burma, which doesn't happen for years later, is very grandiose given the perception of what they're going to face. Not just in terms of geography or lines of communication not being there, but because of the entrenched Japanese enemy. And I didn't bring that up a lot, but they talk about it a lot. And that makes... I don't want to backtrack too far. Part of what shapes planning for Anakim to make it an all or nothing is because Japanese are entrenched. If they, their thinking is if they just take a little piece of Burma, they're going to lose it within the, and, they, and they can't stay through monsoon season. So it has to be a full Monty operation and that very much shapes their planning. I didn't draw that out here. So it, it, it actually, that's what makes those early cases so interesting to me is that, again, it, it the nature of Japanese positioning makes it feel that it has to be so grandiose and shapes the planning that it's this all or nothing. And that then trails down through in terms of, in my subsuming that under logistical feasibility, which may yeah. not be fair. Yeah, I guess in that sense, it's sort of adding on to the idea that I think the logistical feasibility does a lot of the pulling and it seems pretty murky right. and subsumes a lot, right? Initially, when you started out, I was thinking, look, this means, can I get my people on right. the front? Right, right. and maybe it's, it's really too big, it's doing, and it could be doing too much work. Yeah, but and it's think, too too big of a right, and it seems like that's where the really interesting stuff seems mm. going on, right? So maybe I wanted two by two within that factor rather than having sort of the right. more obvious story going on, where you know everybody cares about this a lot because it's World War II, and then we also can't do it because we have this little logistical feasibility, right? It seems really to be matter like how do we get to that point? Well, and I think you know I'm, I haven't if I were ever to take you know maybe in a year or two from now, and this is like, take that next step of thinking about contested logistics today. Yeah. I mean, I have that, I haven't had the time, but that's my policy looming thing in the background that I want to think about is when we're not in a permissive logistical environment, and what does that mean? This is not a U.S. I mean, the U.S. happens to be in all these cases. That was never our intent. Um, but 
the nice part of that is we can then think about the U.S. and all these different types of capacity environment, logistical capacity environments, and that. So that's where that's my policy. One day get to. Not today, but like again, that's my. Eh. Great. So I think nothing reflects a successful seminar more than multiple two fingers. So we have two more on this oh, thread. Uh, uh, first over here, Victoria. Victoria? Point, yes. Okay. Um, so I'm a second year PhD student. Um, it, it seems like what you when you listed out logistic feasibility, mm. and, and forgive me for paraphrasing your three things, but you seem to say that you have enough things, you can get the things to combat, and yes. then you can sustain them in combat. Yep. And it seems like what we're discussing here is that you have enough things, that you have minimum forces, Right, there's this perception element that goes into that, that I'm perceiving, you know, what the min force is. Right. And then I'm, you know, sort of adding up and seeing if I have it. I think one of the things that's confusing, mm -hmm. um, just from a more military perspective, is we wouldn't necessarily think of min forces as a logistic mm. thing. Like, we, we would put that much more in the task position or maybe yep. in a maneuver, where we count up how many things we need to fight this enemy. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that's been confusing me about your mm. theories. You're just lumping that with logistics when... That should be its own. Yeah. Take that out. And, you know, it's funny. Of this, of this story, yes, I break it up with China. Like, they're not, they're not ready and they're not trained. I mean, they spend... The U.S. spends a lot of resources working with the Yunnan force and equipping them as well as training the troops in India. But I think that just... It takes them off the table entirely. And that's maybe not a logistic, and I agree with you, that's not the logistic story. That's a different story. Um, I guess viable fighting force in the first place would be a precursor to that. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair point. Maybe that, maybe that concept has been too stretched. Eric, are you still? I'm still thinking, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, I'll think out loud a little bit. So, Please. you know, just I, I kind of want to return in a sense, maybe t in part to the question of the level at which we're looking at things, but also the comparability across cases and command arrangements. So it just strikes me that, for example, the Korean War is so much different from this case, mm -hmm. right? In this case, we have different, you know, really sort of different sub-theaters or fronts or whatever right. you want to call them. Both sides, you know, in, in this case, the the U.S. Army can continue to fight, and the British Army can and do. They continue to fight separately, basically, mm -hmm. with a minimum of of coordination. So the question is, at what point, you know, the, the degree, the, the the DV here is sort of the degree to which they're actually, um, uh, you know, integrating operations and coordinating together. Mm. Um, whereas in Korea, where you have very straight command arrangements and a contiguous front and all of that. I mean, it's almost accidental, you know, when two different nationalities are going to fight together. If the Chinese attack at a seam, then yes, the British and the Americans are going to be involved together. Um, so I guess that that would be a cautionary note is just to so I will sort of say define carefully so that you have comparable cases. I was trying to think what comparable cases might be. Um, you know, low intensity conflicts or like the, the mm. Peninsular War or the Napoleonic conflict or something where you have armies engaged in the same theater but not contiguous and fully integrated. Interesting. So two, two comments. First, which I didn't mention here, 
um, when we're thinking about this, we're only looking at offensive operations. That way we can get that planning point, the, the choose to fight together versus a defensive operation. So point, you know, and then that. And I think that's a good point. I wish Ryan was here since he knows the Korean case so well and I don't. Um, and I actually thought, it's so funny, I was, th was thinking more about Victoria's point that where I thought you might were going to go was the nature of the operation. <laughs> like, does that mean, you know, and it, it's part, it's like, you know, but they're also shaping the nature of the operation through these conversations. But is there certain types of natures of operations? I haven't, I don't know exactly what that means yet, but is there something going on there? Um, but again, I don't, I don't know what even I mean by this as I'm thinking out loud, but I feel like there's something of that as well. Um, and you're thinking at a broader, you know, you know, comparable theater level or broad, you know, enough to think about, about that too, um, in of scope conditions. The, the offense-defense helps, but I'm not sure it No, no, that's on the micro level right, yeah, of, of yeah. stuff. No, but these broader scope conditions, I think, is a fair, a fair point. Just to flag it, I think you, you want to think through some peculiarities of, well, every campaign is like the peculiarities, but the peculiar similarity between um, the United States and Korea and the United States and this theater, which is this weird combination of wealth and scarcity. The one thing that's always missing in the U.S. and the British Army of the war in August enough actual ground units. There was never enough divisions. And in Korea, the same thing was true for artificial units. The United States put a ceiling on the number of divisions that were sent to Korea because they were afraid the Russians were getting ready to attack us from Europe, and that was the main so this could be some sort of important condition in terms of the motivations to cooperate right? so that the wealthiest power as in your question the Americans done it alone in principle yes but practically no because because it's out of division and before even before that and I'm a Sorry, I'm going to turn my mic. I'm a mom language. My ding dong for forgetting this point in response to your question. Earlier on, we're still training troops. So we actually don't have the troops to do more. And the British are concerned, are increasingly concerned of the amount of troops used, which makes, I totally forgot about this dynamic. One reason they want the Chinese so bad is their troops because the Brits are tired and they're starting to have concerns about moving troops from Europe and getting them, moving them over to Burma. So there's. We're also having a problem. They were actually having, I'm not sure if it's this point in the war, but by 44 they were having to dismantle active divisions to find replacements to keep other divisions up in strength so they could fight. And so there is, and going back to, to Victoria's astute comment, that maybe this is its own variable or thing or scope condition, however we want to think about it, but this minimum necessary that none of them could have go at it alone for different reasons. And I should have like totally remembered that point when you said it, and I totally forgot. But and maybe teasing out, maybe there's something to this. Well, why can't any of them go out alone as either a precondition to the cases we choose, or something in that dynamic? Great. No more two fingers. Right there. Oh, back. one more. <laughs> I've got to get back to the list. All right, Kelly. Related to all of these things, I kind of wonder if, as it's set up, if logistical constraints aren't endogenous to stakes. Yes, if, yeah. absolutely. But I don't know how to teach them. set of decisions, mm -hmm. but the stakes are not aligned such that they would or that they could, that they should. And so 
it's not clear, this goes to, I think, Richard's and Maria's and Barry's and Victoria's point. It's not clear to me that you're, that you're actually measuring something distinct. Mm. Which isn't to say that there isn't something distinct, but it's not clear to me that you're measuring it because it seems that it's embedded Agreed. And I think, and that totally shapes how the British are even thinking about their stakes vis-a-vis -vis Burma in the first place. And you, and you cannot, I mean, you can separate out stakes to the theater, but the specifics to actually Burma itself, I think it's all, it's, they're totally intertwined. But also if what's driving these things is happening at a higher strategic level, then separating it out at the theater level, they make sense, but may not make sense. Yeah. Let me skip back to the list. So <laughs> Um, no, no, that's good. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, so let's see, I've got four folks left. Um, why don't we do speed dating, um, group two questions together. Jim, you're next, but you're shaking yeah, your head. Yeah, I'm shaking my head at the two-fingered people. Oh. Uh, I'm kidding. So I enjoyed this very much. Oh, and I really you. liked the way you, um, you know, pointed to parts of it that you thought you wanted to flesh out and to get our help with that. I'm going to just list these small questions in the spirit of a focus group feedback, but I don't expect you to respond. Okay. You can pick one or none or whatever. To unfairly simplify your question, why do these coalitions form? Because they want to and they can. Okay. Now, is there a set of cases in all those many cases where they want to, they can, and don't? And what does that tell you about the thing that you're trying to answer? I assume that happens. It's probably because of triage or politics or something. But I'd be interested about that, you know, about that phenomenon. Uh, two, is there a lot of politics or rather little in this? Hmm. Are the military staff trading decisions in one area against another, in one battle against another? Are they deploying their civilian leadership to try to get agreement on something or their intra-service mm. coalitions where Air Force and Party 1 and Air Force and Party 2 and you get at some of that in some of your answers but it might be good informally presenting mm. it just saying you know it's here but it's important or it's not important and then third super small in cases where multiple players are in a coalition how do you characterize different participation outcomes in the mm. same decision set. So in this one, imagine a theoretical mm. world in which the three of them get together, China and the U.S. decide to do it, British mm. doesn't. That is a coalition formation, and it's the failure of a coalition formation. So um, that's got to happen sometimes, I assume. So those th things, and then on to other questions. All right, so you can hold your fire for a second. Um, next, we have mm. Wright Smith. Oh, Wright's going to lunch, so yeah, Wright definitely can wait. Okay, um, <laughs> uh, Ben Harris. Sure, uh, thank you. I'm a, I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate. Um, this talk was incredibly interesting. It's always fun to learn something new about World War II that I okay. didn't know, know before. Um, my original question was about the endogeneity between uh, your two independent variables, mm -hmm. which I think was hit on by four or five separate two-finger <laughs> questions. Um, so to skip that, I think it's clear that stakes as is like a primary uh, so if we're, if we're looking at stakes, like earlier you responded to Maria that the United States couldn't go alone in Burma, and I don't know if that's accurate. I think that like if the British could have done it, the U.S. could have. It's just super far down the U.S.'s priorities in 1943. There are a million other things the U.S. wants to do. And so even in your coding, I don't necessarily know that I would say this is a high-stakes campaign for the U.S. It's higher stakes for them than the British, 
But in the grand scheme of strategic goals in 1943, I think it's pretty low stakes. And so that actually like points to a potentially interesting theoretical point, which is that battlefield coalitions form in a sweet spot where the stakes are, um, are they're not too much that a state, that, like the stakes aren't so high that a state will just do it regardless of if a coalition forms or not. So if the stakes are really high, a state will just do it and it doesn't matter if it have allies. Conversely, if the stakes are too low, then it's not willing to even join a group project. So what you really want is like for the stakes to be in that middle ground, um, and I think that explains why like China, Burma, or China, the UK, and the US were all willing to participate when there was like medium stakes for them compared to all the other operations that they had. <laughs> to your actually really insightful point, and I swear my voice will come back in a second. It's like my last sip of water too. It's like, come on water. Um, <clears throat> how do they code those? I didn't even think about that. Like I was just going along reading these documents. I'm like, wow, this is so high. But I, they were in, they were in the context of all of these other conversations <clears throat> that I read. But I was looking at it on terms of the context of relative to Burma itself. And so you could definitely open up the aperture, and I think that's definitely worth thinking about. You were, Eric's comment was always on a more theater-based, I almost level, of this same kind of question, if you think about it. Like, how is it balancing these other objectives within the region? <clears throat> and yes, the multi-front war comment has come out <laughs> before. This is, at least it's not COVID coughing. Um, come out before, but I think that's a really interesting, you know, it was just an intuitive almost coding instead of like a systematic, like top-down deductive. That's a really, it's, thank you. Um, did you have more question? Oh, thanks. Oh, and uh, did we, we keep going? Um, we're, we're getting close to time, so okay. I would say... Okay. Is it because I'm dying? No, well, there's that too. So um, <laughs> uh, you can address whatever you, you heard in the last two questions, and then we'll draw to a close. Okay. Um, thank you for all the questions. But I think the one that actually makes my favorite, and I don't have answers, I mean, some of this has been brought up, was um, how to characterize different participation. Like the natural extension of the answer to these questions, if I could do them, would say, you would see then, sh that would shape not just the operation, or the battle, operation, whatever happening or not, what participation looks like. Um, and I don't obviously have an answer to that, but I think that's, it's, a, it's a natural extension, and it's really interesting. And in some cases, you could get leverage by understanding their participation and then saying, well, how did that get shaped? Um, because the U.S. participates, you know, they're there in a very small capacity in the, in the sense of engineering capacity, still wear a leadership capacity, but they're just coming in with this long-range penetration group with the morale moderates. That's a very, like narrow capacity relative to what others are contributing um, versus like a 30,000 whatever size. You know, I, I don't remember what the numbers are, but that's the projected size of what the Chinese participation is going to be and the goal of this and that. Um, so I, I don't have an answer, but I really like that question. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Wednesdays with SSP. This is Chris Burns, signing off.